This podcast uses adult language. Listener discretion is advised. This is Kevin. And I'm Elizabeth. And this is the Lesson 83 podcast. Hey, Elizabeth, how you doing? Pretty good. How are you? Doing much better this week. Awesome. I was sick last week. Oh, no. Yeah. It wasn't great. So tonight we are wanting to talk a little bit about date night anxiety. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this isn't for when you are going on a date. This is when your partner is going on a date. Yes. So do you want to kick us off on experiences and like kind of what we're including in this moniker? Sure. So date night anxiety when your partner is going on a date and you maybe don't have plans or you have different plans is common and normal in polyamory, I would say. And there are lots of different ways to deal with it. And I feel like this touches on several different topics that we're going to cover a little bit about jealousy, a little bit about maybe compatibility, different ways to that, that we prefer to occupy our time and our minds. So yeah, I think we're going to cover a few of those things. So to kind of sum it up, it's that really terrible feeling you get when you have agreed to be polyamorous, maybe you've been doing this for a decade, maybe you've been doing this for two days, and your partner has you know, a date coming up, and the day before, the day of, a couple hours before, you suddenly are not okay with it, yeah. and you don't know why. Yeah. Something you've like spent a lot of time thinking about, you've you know made the conscious decision and had a lot of discussions with your partner, done all the right things, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and suddenly everything is terrible and nothing is right. Yes. And I've seen you know, experienced poly people experience this, you know, this is normal. It happens. Some people experience it more than others. You know, some people rarely experience this or maybe never depends on the setup and the communication and the agreements and who you are as a person. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So I have had plenty of times where I've been in stable relationships where I've been happy and fulfilled my relationships. Obviously, I've been polyamorous for a decade now. Suddenly, the day of a date, I get this really sinking pit feeling in my stomach and really frustrated and upset and not really sure why I'm feeling this way. And, you know, it's just, it's a knee-jerk emotional response I've understood and started to expect. And I think maybe I experience it once out of every hundred times my partner has a date you know some partners elicited it more than others definitely yeah i think that um one factor and i would not say that this is across the board but one factor might be how secure we feel in one relationship versus another one so you know if i have if i'm juggling multiple relationships i I might feel more secure in my 11 year relationship versus my you know three-month relationship so i might feel like fine with my spouse going on on a date because I feel like I know where we stand. You know, I definitely expect to reconnect with him when he comes home, etc. But if my new newer partner goes on a date, I might feel more negative feelings that I might have to deal with. Yeah. Yeah. So that's one factor. Um, so we've kind of described what it is. What are some good ways to either cope with these feelings or preempt them? Or how do we take care of them after the fact? So many ideas. Um, Beforehand, communication is vital. Talk to your partner before they go on their date about like um, whether you'd like them to check in with you like via text or something during the date. Usually I am pretty clear with my partners that I'm not going to be available unless it's an emergency because I'm focusing on 
a particular person and they deserve quality time. They deserve my full attention. And so if I'm constantly checking my phone because my spouse is feeling anxiety or whatever wants to check in with me, that's not really an appropriate time in my opinion to have those conversations like while I'm on the date. Yeah. Um, that's not productive for me. So, um, so talk to your partner before the date about, um, communication, I would say. And like, if there is an emergency, how they'll communicate with you, like maybe call you or something instead of texting. Um, I would also say that my main piece of advice usually for this situation is to occupy yourself when your partner goes on a date, whether that's with your friends or go on your own date or take yourself to a movie or if you're an introvert or like alone time, you know, do your alone time thing. Take a hot bath, yeah. some candles, read a book, play a video game, like whatever you want to do. I have definitely found that like having something set ahead of time mm-hmm. scheduled for me really, really helps. Me whether too. that's with other people or not. Just knowing that I have that thing, uh, especially if it's something that your partner doesn't enjoy doing, this is your chance to carte planche, do things without having to worry about their preferences at all. Definitely. they won't be present. Yeah. And that's one thing I love about polyamory. Because mm-hmm. like if one partner enjoys horror movies and another partner only watches comedy, then you have like options when it comes to how you spend your time with them. And yeah, like you're saying, if they're doing something on their own or going on a date, yeah, now is your chance to explore things that they don't want to do with you, which is fine because <laughs> we're all different people. Uh, so before the date happens, you can ask for like consideration from your partner, ask for like verbal affirmation, that kind of stuff. Can you give a couple examples of that? Yeah. If I was feeling insecure in my relationships or I was feeling like, you know, having this date night anxiety, I would probably talk to my partner and just say like, hey, I'd really like you to tell me something you like about me and something that's special about our relationship. Just make me feel special right now because that would really help. Yeah. No, that'd be something that I feel like I could easily ask for in my relationships and not be mocked for, Yeah, talked down to at all. Yeah, I like that idea. Um, when I do that, I usually try to give them a little time to think about it first, like maybe a few minutes or half an hour. Or if, the, if I don't live with them, maybe I'll text them the question because I find that sometimes when people are put on the spot, they're like, oh, I can't think of anything positive to say, which obviously is not, you know, and that may make make you feel worse. (laughs) So at least in my experience, I try to be like, hey, you know, like sometime in the next hour, I'd love to sit down for five minutes with you and like talk about the nice things about our relationship and some nice memories and things like that. Yeah, that can be a really positive way to uh, prep your brain for what you're about to experience. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, especially if it becomes a recurring problem, mm-hmm. you know, that you have every now and again, definitely see what you can do in both coordination with your partner, but more importantly, on your own. Like, what are the tools that you can do for yourself or that you can reach out to your larger social circle, you know, your found family, your family, your friends, whatever it is. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I know a lot of people will also, especially if they're in primary relationships, ask for time to reconnect after a date. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that's as soon as your partner leaves a date with your metamor, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, you'll immediately get to see them. But that may not be the case. But just saying a specific time, you know, a specific date, like, hey, I know I get to see them at X time. Yeah. On Wednesdays, I usually have two dates, uh, one with my spouse and one with my boyfriend. And um, I like the way that's set up. I think it works for all three of us because – I get to spend several hours with my husband and we have a nice lunch and we do whatever we want to do together. Maybe we go somewhere, maybe we stay in. And then after that, I feel like 
we're solid, you know, like we've spent quality time together. We've, we've connected in that way. So for me that that's a before thing, uh, but it can also be done after. It just depends on how your brain works really. And yeah. your individual require or your individual preferences. Yep. Yeah. Uh, one thing to do after the date as well, um, ask your partner or if you're a partner who's very, very excited about your new relationship and you come home to your partner who may be struggling a little bit, don't gush all at once about how amazing this new person is. Even if you're feeling it, that is awesome. Mm -hmm. Harness that energy. Um, if you really need to gush to somebody, find a friend who is, you know, really good with it or a very compersive, you know, other partner. Don't put it on the partner who's having struggles. Yeah. It definitely. may not be something helpful. It could be, you know, talk to them and find out what their specific needs are. Mm -hmm. But on the whole, I've not seen that be a very positive thing. And I know my immediate response to coming home from a date is gushing to my, you know, live-in partner at the time. Yeah. And that's because they're usually like one of our best friends, you yeah. know, and we want to share the excitement with them and yeah. we want to tell them about this new exciting thing in our life. And I think that's normal. But yes, I would say find a friend to talk to because your your partner may not want to hear all about how amazing your new boo is about, you know, like, you know, it might make them feel more insecure definitely, or true. overwhelmed or compared uh, comparison is the thief yeah. of joy in many ways, right? I read that today and I was like, oh, that's so true. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> uh, so I would definitely, if I was the one feeling insecure or having the date night anxiety, I would definitely uh, prefer not my partner not volunteer a whole bunch of information. Let me ask the questions mm -hmm. that helps me dictate and sometimes, you know, this is one of those landmine circumstances where you ask a question you didn't want to know the answer to until yeah. you heard it. Yeah. I did that on a car ride recently. That was fun. Oh, that's tough. Yeah. I try hard not to have those conversations in the car, but sometimes it's inevitable. Just you walk into it, right? I, I honestly thought the the answer to the question was going to be no. It was my anxiety oh. telling me. And that it like, was yes. It was yes, but yeah. it was it was okay. Yeah. Everything was fine. Yeah. It's amazing. Polyamory mm. has given me a sense of, this sounds kind of bad, but resilience because it forces me to deal with my emotions and my insecurities in a way that I didn't have to before in the mm -hmm. same way because, you know, and it, it's actually caused me to be more confident, I think, um, because I do communicate with my partners about our, you know, when we, when we have those tough discussions and then we get through them, I feel like we're even stronger. Yeah. That's all I mean, you know? Definitely. And yeah. I, I think that, you know, it's, like exposing your body to to things eventually you you know develop responses to them that are healthy mm -hmm. if you're cognizant mm -hmm. if you're working well and you know if if things are consistently bad you know maybe time to look into something we'll we'll, we'll get to what that might mean in a little bit sounds good uh as for asking questions one thing that I always had in my relationships just cuz it makes me feel better is any sort of physical acts. I don't want to paint a picture in my head. Mm -hmm. I always ask my partners to be extraordinarily vague. Mm -hmm. The only thing I want to know about my partner's sex lives typically is Safety. like is whether they've passed the boundary required for paperwork yep. and yep. if they yep. saw the paperwork. And I want to know nothing more than those two things. And I try to, you know, be very honest with my partners about that. And my partners so far have been really great about that. Because I learned through time that like 
asking questions and getting the answers made me feel a lot worse. Mm -hmm. Um, And me volunteering information to partners in similar ways didn't make them feel super comfortable. But I know other people are totally fine or really enjoy hearing the details, like the nitty gritty. And so like finding out with your partner where that line is can be boundaries can be a little hard and like sometimes takes a little trial and error to figure out Mm -hmm. and i think that's you know that no one should see that as any kind of step back or any kind of failure obviously because you've you are an experience i have been doing this for 10 years and i feel very confident in exactly i do relationships and that's great and i feel confident in your relationships as well (laughs) and so i feel like you did a great thing you figured out your boundaries you figured out your comfort levels and you communicated them to your partners and that's all we can do yeah. Really. So in my relationship, it's very different. I My partners have seen me have sex with each other in the same room and they are fine with that most of the time. But it's interesting because like there are different boundaries because some some of my partners would rather see it in person than hear about it mm-hmm. or they'd rather, you know, be involved than hear me in another room with another partner. Right. So it can be a little tricky when you're just starting to figure out these boundaries because you know, especially with sex and other kinds of intimacy, it can be very emotionally charged, yes. I guess. Yeah. Did you have anything you wanted to add about what are best practices for preempting or, you know, self-caring through uh, date night anxiety? Yeah. Um, you know, we talked about gushing to a friend about your newer partner. And I think that it's important to, during your partner's date to also have a friend in mind or maybe one you've already checked in with that you can maybe talk to about your anxieties while your partner is unavailable because they're on a date. So yeah, if I feel like texting my friend down the road and be like, hey, I'm kind of struggling because, you know, I miss my partner and they're on a date and blah, blah, blah. It can be good to hear someone, especially another polyamorous person who understands this situation. That can be really helpful. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So seek out local community. Yes. Find cool poly friends either in person or online. Mm-hmm. We're everywhere. Um, yeah, we're we're everywhere now and becoming more and more popular as days go on. Yes. <laughs> uh so we we kind of touched on this before, but if you're experienced prolonged periods where every single time your partner goes on a date for months on end, you're having extraordinary anxiety. And, you know, trying to up your emotional intelligence, trying to be better about caring for yourself and preempting your needs, all of that is not helping at all. Maybe this lifestyle may not be for you. Or maybe this lifestyle with this partner may not be for you. I have felt extraordinarily different about how one partner dates versus another. Definitely. And there was no logic behind it. I was always very honest. Sometimes our feelings by definition almost, are not logical. Mm -hmm. They're based solely on how our body wants to react to things most of the time. And there are ways for us to help. Or the danger that our bodies think that we're in. Yeah. You know, the stress responses, even if it's psychological. Yeah. So, yeah. So think about that. Be be cognizant. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to yourself for sure. And, like, sometimes it takes years to figure out your own limits, your boundaries, or whether you even want to be polyamorous or monogamous, you know? And some people do both or go back and forth or, you know, decide they tried one and didn't like it and they go to the other relationship structure and that's fine. But as long as you're above board, it's all good. All right. Well, thanks. Uh, We'll be back with another segment in a little bit. All right.
And we are back. I am back here with my good friend, Rachel, who is a parent and polyamorous. And so we wanted to continue our discussion from last week about should we tell the kids we're polyamorous? Hello again, Kevin. I'm so happy to be here. So glad to have you back because of your perspective on all of this. It would be very hard for me to talk about this since I don't have any kids. (laughs) So let me just get started right off the bat. Like, did you ever officially introduce your kids to the concept of polyamory and like if so i did so we decided to be open with the kids about it we wanted to be honest with them about it but my kids are very young so we had a pretty simplified conversation where i just sort of discussed like the definition of polyamorous hey this means that you know I have a romantic relationship with Daddy Rob and I have a romantic relationship with Sam. And, you know, but then I also pointed out like the opposite of that. There are a lot of people in our family, like my kids' grandparents. I was able to say, you know, your grandma and grandpa are monogamous with each other. They don't have any other romantic relationships. They only are with each other. Mm. And so, you know, I mean, (laughs) my kids are very young. So we had to discuss like, what does it even mean to have a romantic relationship? (laughs) What is that? Yeah. Just for reference for the viewer or listeners who may not have caught it last episode, how old are your kids and how many people are in your your current household? My oldest child is currently four. When we had these kinds of conversations, my oldest child was probably five. Maybe, maybe we started talking about it when she was four, but she was probably five. And my household consists of my husband, mm-hmm. my partner, and myself, and we all raise our five children together. Awesome. Thank you so much for that. So uh, what are considerations people should make when they decide to tell their kids or not? Yeah, There are a lot of good reasons not to tell your kids, and there are a lot of good reasons to tell your kids. If you are going to tell your kids, you have to understand, of course, that they're going to tell other people. (laughs) Kids are terrible liars. Yes. And it's mean to expect them to lie. You know, that's a really heavy thing to ask a kid to carry. So if you are going to tell your children, you also need to be able to be open generally. Maybe not open at work. You know, maybe your kids aren't going to talk to your bosses or anything like that. I don't know if you have company picnics or Christmas parties. Maybe you do need to be open at work too. But yeah, be aware of who your kids are going to be around and who they're going to be talking to about it. Other considerations, if you're going to talk to your kids about it, I think their age is really an important consideration. Like I said, it was it was an easy choice for me because they were very young. But Mm -hmm. I could understand if you have children who are older this would be a very difficult conversation to have with them and they will have more feelings about it than probably my very young kids had you know my young kids were like oh okay whatever (laughs) yeah this becomes very normalized them and you know we all kind of grow up and assume that everything that we experience in life is normal until we go off somewhere where everybody's lives are very different than ours and we're like oh that was weird that i grew up this way right? (laughs) or or different, maybe not weird necessarily, but. Yeah, exactly. So older kids will definitely have a more nuanced perspective and they'll have more, more questions that might be difficult for you to answer. So yeah, consider your individual child and what they're going to want to understand and give yourself the time and the space to have these kinds of conversations over 
time because it's not going to just be one simple conversation and then the kids never talk about it again. You know, you're going to have to have many, many conversations with your kids about this topic. So one thing also is that if you've been doing this for a while and suddenly you need to have this conversation with a more adult child, like maybe a teenager or even like a fully adult child, and you have been dishonest with them, either through omission or directly about who the people that they've been seeing in and out of their household has been, that's something that you're going to have to own up to, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if you've been dishonest with them. And, you know, you're, you're in a lucky position in that you have set yourself up to not have to have those sorts of conversations. Yeah. Yeah. That was definitely a consideration that I made. I think about the things that my parents lied to me about or asked me to lie about, and I just didn't want to do that to my children. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I have so much sympathy for polyamorous parents who do choose to hide these things from their kids because you want to protect them from the you know, the possible downfalls of it. You know, there are possible downfalls, like we talked about in the last episode, like people coming in and out of their kids' lives. And so if you wanted to protect them from that by maybe even not having your partners around at all, and so you didn't tell your kids about your partners. Or even your your parents or other people not wanting to be a part of your lives as much because they don't agree with, your relationship dynamic. Right. If you wanted to just let your kids have an uncomplicated relationship with your extended family and not not be open, not be out to everybody in your family so that your so that your kids and your extended families could have you know easier relationships, then it, it's very understandable. But at this point, yeah. if you're now trying to tell your kid or you're a grown adult child that you were hiding this from them this whole time, you're going to have to own it and make space for them to have feelings about what's been going on. Yeah. And, and like, you know, for, for your situation, especially like it wouldn't make any sense to hide it from them because you wanted to have a blended family. Right. Yeah. That would certainly would be strange <laughs> if we were all trying to say that, oh, no, we're not really dating. We're all just living together this way. <laughs> So you ever concerned about how your kids might express their home life to others or the way in which they, the the things that they may take as an assumption uh, because they grew up in this household? Yeah, certainly. We have to have lots of conversations about these types of things. So um, I don't worry so much about the way that, the ways that my kids will talk about our home life because they tend to talk about it in very simple terms like oh i have two dads and you know and that's like a lot of people have two dads so that doesn't sound so strange you know but i do try to help them understand that not everybody dates multiple people at the same time mm-hmm. so for example my my 7 year old daughter she had a couple of boyfriends and I said <laughs> I said hey uh you should probably talk to each of them about the fact that you have many boyfriends because some of them might not be okay with that you know like yeah we do that but not everybody does that so you have to have and I'm sure we'll have a lot more nuanced conversations about that sort of thing you know if you if they choose to conduct themselves polyamorously uh not everybody is going to agree with them or want to be in relationships with them in that way as they grow up and start dating seriously. 
I've I've had the really interesting experience of meeting people who came out of polyamorous households, and mm -hmm. I know maybe about an equal amount that came out the other side of growing up in those sorts of households being consciously monogamous or consciously polyamorous. Yeah, I absolutely expect that my kids will choose whatever is best for them. And probably some of them will rebel against what we've done in just to be, you know, just to be the opposite. And some of them yeah. will choose what we've done because they admire us. And some of them will just genuinely, I hope, eventually get to the place where they are choosing what is right for them. And I want, That's really good. I certainly want my kids to feel empowered to make those choices. I don't want them to grow up thinking, oh, well, polyamory is the best way because it's what my parents did. I want them to to weigh the pros and cons for themselves. Yeah. Or even just follow what feels right to them. Right. Like you were saying before. Have you ever prepped your kids on how to express this to other adults in their life if they or like to have them expect any sort of people to see what they do is maybe incorrect or not morally, you know, acceptable? Yes. <laughs> because of course how other people react to your family is that's a difficult thing. Yeah. Um and it's I think it's hard for my children to really grasp that right now. They tend to just go, but why? Like, but what's the problem? And, yeah. and so I have to sort of like put on the other perspective and explain it to the kids. You know, like some people just really don't agree with the way that we choose to live. And they might think that it's bad and they might tell you that it's bad, you know. But as it stands now, my kids are they're like, oh, well, I'll just say that they're wrong. You know, like no, <laughs> that, you know, they'll just be like, no my family is not a bad thing and my parents are not bad, you know? Yeah. But yeah, it's tricky because of course some people choose not to be friends with you when they find out about polyamory and I've mm. lost friends over it, of course. And I worry for the kids that they're going to face that sort of stigma and lose friendships. And, but my kids always just say, well, We'll just come back and tell you about it and we'll ask you for help whenever things like That's that really happen. Sweet. Yeah. Yeah. And I hope I hope that is how it goes. I hope that I can just hold them through every heartache and help them get through each situation as it arises. Yeah. And listeners probably hear the the kids in the background. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like they're having a good time Playing right now. In the yard. They're not they're not in any sort of distress. <laughs> you know, it seems like they've got a every time I come over, they really seem to be very happy or as happy as often as kids tend to be. <laughs> I think so. I think I'm pretty lucky that I have, you know, kids that are like exuberant and excited and lively and <laughs> Yeah, I think that they have a lot going for them that'll be protective whenever they do face the stigma that they probably will face. Yeah, kind of circling back to people that maybe are dating people with kids. Have you ever been on the flip side and had to be a secret yes. uh, to somebody's kids? Yeah. Well, what was that experience like? Yeah, that's definitely an important consideration when you're talking about whether or not to tell the kids because being somebody else's secret can be really 
hard. I tend not to feel bad about it unless it becomes a really serious relationship where I really want to be more uh, more involved in my partner's day-to-day life. Then mm-hmm. it can be really gut-wrenching to be like a secret. Um, yeah. So when you're thinking about should we tell the kids, you have to consider what is what is the level of seriousness you're looking for in your relationships or what is the level of seriousness that already exists in your romantic relationships and how much daily practical help do you want? How much honest, serious emotional support do you want? Because if you're going to allow somebody to be so close to you but not be close to your children or have honest relationships with your children and honest conversations with your children, that can be really hurtful. Yeah. Uh, One thing that I have had posited at group meetings in the organizations I help run is people having concern about CPS. Uh, Do you have anything you want to say about that? Like, I have a few things that I know based on what I've been told you know, obviously you and I aren't legal experts, so don't take this as legal advice. <laughs> that's that's my disclaimer right now. But other than that, like, what, what, are your, what are your experiences or thoughts on that? Gosh, I absolutely worry about it. I don't know anything <laughs> legally. I don't know any of the legality, but I definitely worry about it. And I, I took the path of just being honest and being open because I think maybe that will help me if somebody tries to accuse me of doing something sinister i'll be like hey i was i was being honest i was being open i was just trying to you know raise my kids in in a way that has a lot of support and a lot of loving caregivers but i definitely worry that somebody will look at the situation and and think that we're doing something harmful and and call cps on us i absolutely yeah. worry about it what what I've heard, and maybe this will provide you some solace, is that CPS is very focused on there being no abuse or neglect. And as mm. long as there's no signs of either, then you really have nothing to worry about. Um, again, I'm not a lawyer, so don't take this as legal advice. Yeah. <laughs> but but uh, – Based on, I I I know somebody that came to our group and said that they were they had a family member call CPS on them, and when that happened, the only thing they were worried about is making sure that the home was clean and that there weren't any sort of signs of abuse, and that when the kids were asked questions outside of the parents being around, that the kids seemed to be, uh, you know, that they didn't express that there was any sort of problem. That's good to know. And I and I hope that's true. And I, I believe that to be true. I've only had like one interaction with adult protective services when I worked with a young man who had um, autism. And so mm-hmm. and that was very similar. What you're saying is very similar to what I saw. The, the APS was just concerned about neglect and abuse. And and when they didn't see any signs of that, they dropped the case. So I hope that that would be true. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Rachel, for all of your help uh, talking to us this week. And I'm sure we'll have you back at some point uh, in the future because I really value all of your insights into all of this. So thanks again. Thank you so much for talking to me. (laughs) 
This episode was edited by Jordan Davis. Music is by Anti Lude and logo designed by Carmen Bolden. The best way that you can help support our podcast is by sharing it with your friends. Sharing is caring. Thank you.